Welcome to the bullpen. In the bullpen today, we have uh, economics professor at Texas Tech University and co-author of Money and the Rule and Comparative Economics Research Fellow, Free Market Institute, commentator Young Voices, Alexander Salter. Wow, impressive guy. Mr. Salter, how are you? I'm doing really well, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, Professor. We're gonna chop it up about socialism versus capitalism. I don't want to presume what you know or believe about those comparative dynamics. So if you would, give us your sentiment as it relates to those two operations. Sure, so obviously I'm in the pro-capitalist camp. I think that that's pretty clear from my track record of publications. Um, the recent public conversation that surrounded capitalism and socialism has been both exciting and frustrating. It's been exciting because these are the big debates. These are the big questions and how we organize our systems for producing and distributing resources. Let's have the debate. That's wonderful, it's wonderful when we have these historical discussions and actually get into the nuts and bolts of what's going on. I'm frustrated though, because I don't think that either the people who self identify as socialists or the critics of socialism actually know what socialism is. I don't think there are very many socialists in the United States. Socialism means public ownership of the means of production. It means governments control the commanding heights of the economy. Economists don't agree on anything. If you ask 10 economists what socialism means, they will all give you that definition. So many people who identify as quote unquote democratic socialists, they're not really socialists. Oftentimes when people on the right criticize socialism, they're not really criticizing socialism. And so it's a little bit sad that we're having this once in a generation opportunity, but everybody seems to be talking past each other. You know, it's really interesting because I actually agree with much of your sentiment. We do something in research science, you know this, it's called define the variables. So give me your definition of socialism, your working definition of socialism and your working definition of capitalism and let's go from there. Absolutely, I'm going with the standard definitions that economists have used for more than 100 years. Socialism, no private property, government ownership of the factors of production. Capitalism, there is private property, private ownership of the factors of production. On the one hand, you have all the productive resources concentrated in the public sector, that's socialism. On the other hand, under capitalism, you have decentralized property ownership. I think that that's the right definition and that's the place to start. Can you name a pure capitalistic nation? No, there isn't one. Can you name a pure socialistic nation? Two for two, no, there isn't one. You cannot. There, are some that come, there are some that come much closer than others. So here's so, my point, professor, here's my point to you. You have just said you cannot name a pure capitalistic nation. You cannot name a pure socialistic nation, but we still say that nations are either capitalistic or socialistic which is a deviation from definition. Because what we're really saying is that countries have variations of capitalism and variations of socialism, correct? I am 100% on board with that, absolutely. All right, we can and start from that that's premise. Where a lot of the nuance comes into this conversation. We can start from that premise. Um, let's look at policy by policy, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think you would agree as an economist, um, and, and I know you are well versed on economic theory, uh, barter theory and, and the whole nine. When it comes to uh, economy or capitalism in the ecosystem uh, of money, you ha must have some level of common sense regulation in those marketplaces uh, for 
just the decency of humanity. Would you not agree or are you for a purely free market system? I think that you do need rules governing market outcomes. I don't think that necessarily those rules have to come from the public sector. I think if you look at a lot of times and places, just for self-interested reasons, a lot of businesses will self-regulate. Maybe you say we need more than that. A lot of times industries come up with voluntary codes of compliance. Those often do a good job of governing firm behavior and making sure that producers who obviously know way more about their good than consumers do don't take advantage of the little guy. Now, whether or not you want regulation really depends on what your goal is. Are we talking about keeping products safe? Are we talking about getting a specific distribution of income, purchasing power quality across people? Let's define what the goal is. Mm-hmm. And then we can focus on smart common sense solutions to try and get those goals in terms let, of- Let me tell you some of the goals. So let me tell you some of the goals. Obviously, if you're talking about tort law, you're referencing product safety, right? So you need regulatory standards to make sure that companies not only have an incentive to produce products that are safe, but they also have incentives to give fair warning if there could be unsafe practices use, etc. And there's common sense remedy when there's a manufacturing issue. So that's regulation in the marketplace of business. Another regulation that I like is the regulation of a minimum wage requirement. Because without any level of minimum wage requirement, you will have people being paid $4, $5, $6 an hour. Now that will fluctuate with the economy, right? Uh, the number of jobs available compared to the number of people willing to work them. So that will fluctuate, but we know for sure that in certain market settings, a capitalistic or purely capitalistic system will always take advantage of that marketplace dynamic without regulation whatsoever. So those are some common sense regulations. Also, also uh, the regulation against um, discriminatory behavior uh, that could be gender bias or race bias. We don't wanna see that in our workplaces um, uh, either, right? That's a common sense regulatory factor, would you not agree? I'm certainly on board with the Civil Rights Act. The minimum wage, though, I suspect that you and I disagree. I'm not a fan of the minimum wage. I actually think that the economic literature on this that shows that it really takes the bottom rung out of the employment ladder is pretty convincing. And I think the reason is a lot of this debate has been looking at the wrong outcome or the wrong goal. We're all asking, does the minimum wage destroy, does the minimum wage destroy jobs? Do people actually get unemployed when the minimum wage gets raised? And oftentimes the answer is no. But that's That's not what economics predicts. Economics predicts that when the minimum wage gets raised, workers are going to see some of their hours cut. And that result does hold up a lot stronger in the literature when we actually research this. So it's all well and good to say we want people to earn $15 an hour. I'm certainly on board with the sentiment. But on the one hand, we have to ask where are workers better off? Where they're earning a lower wage, but they're able to get 40 hours a week? or whether they're getting a higher hourly wage and they can't get all their hours and so they can't make ends meet. So I think that there are some complicated trade-offs that we have to look at here. And I think that the body of the evidence shows that the minimum wage, while well-intentioned, does more harm than good. Well, let me give you a contrast narrative to that. Because what we've seen, even though everybody, every time there was a debate about increasing the minimum wage, Everyone on the right said this is going to destroy jobs. You know what happened? Marketplace correction happened. You're an economist, you know that. It did not lead to the massive job losses that people said it would lead to. There was a marketplace adjustment for that increase every single time. The issue is inflation. You have a dollar that is purchasing less and less and less. I'm for increasing the minimum wage. I'm also for increasing it based on regional opportunity because one region is more expensive than the other. If you have a uniform minimum wage, let's say it is 50. 
$15 an hour. Well, you have some cities, it costs $21 an hour to survive in that city, not 15, right? So you still don't have a problem solved in that particular regional economy or economic reality. If you take this based on what's called a graduated approach, right? Because I think many times economists like yourself, you will use the argument of, well, if you just increase the minimum wage, those who are young, those who are less skilled will end up getting no job basically. Their unemployment, and you call that bottom rung in the in the statistical data, that will increase significantly, right? And and yes, we have seen that. But we've also seen other countries that do have high minimum wage wages. What they do is they graduate you in based on age. And so while they have a standard or a federalized minimum wage that's high, $15 an hour and more comparatively speaking. They also have a different set for a younger worker to make sure younger workers are still able to get that experience. And as a trade off, they're able to also have those 40 hours. I feel as if many times in the conversational debate about increasing the minimum wage, none of that is considered. Right, it's either 100% this way or 100% that way. Um, I would love to live in a world where $15 an hour was the set minimum wage for everybody, no matter what. But I also know the reality of this, Professor, that if you set it without a graduation phase for younger workers, young black workers will have the highest rate of unemployment because of the discriminatory patterns that already exist in hiring in the first place. That makes a lot of sense to me. Now, let me be clear, I'm against the minimum wage and I'm against a graduated minimum wage. But you pointed out something very important. Regions are not equal. Workers are not equal within the same region and they're certainly not equal across regions. They have differing characteristics. And so we need some system that takes account of that. Well, we have a system that takes account of that, the market price for labor meaning the wage rate. I think what a lot of these debates overlook is what we're really looking to do is make sure that workers actually have some minimum standard of living. We want to make sure that people have enough to live with dignity. And that's a sentiment that I can get behind. In which case though, I wonder if we shouldn't actually be talking about instead of messing with market prices, which has all sorts of nasty consequences, maybe we should be talking about the safety net instead. All right, so we can get into that. And I want to make sure I clarify. When I say younger workers, I'm talking about 14, 15, 16 years of age. I'm talking about very young workers who need that experience getting into the workforce. We can get into the safety net, but before we go there, I wanted to do just kind of an analysis of more left-leaning policy compared to right-leaning policy, right? Do you think that left-leaning economic policy and also policies that are not considered economic policies, but impact the ecosystem of economy. Do you think left-leaning policies have been more effective to grow the economy or right-leaning policies? I'm gonna go with right-leaning policies, provided that we understand conventionally that that's broadly consistent with tax cuts and deregulation. I think that that's what's going to work to grow the economy. And I think that a lot of policies by the left, while well-intentioned in terms of trying to equalize outcomes, have been a drag on the economy. Now we can debate how good economic growth is as opposed to more equitable outcomes. I'm a growth guy. I think that the only long-term poverty program that has ever worked in human history is economic growth. So I'm actually proud to come down on that side of the debate, that side of the debate, and I'll defend that. All right. Well, let me give you some facts. Okay. Let me take you to the administration of Donald Trump. Donald Trump claimed that he will cut taxes at a record at a record rate. That you will pay the lowest amount you've ever paid in modern history. He made all of these proclamations during the campaign. So let me take you to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Right. That was very famous, very popular. 
They hyped it up, but here's what it actually did. The individual American taxpayer actually paid more in taxes that year. They paid, they paid $93 billion more in actual taxes. While they had more in refund payments, they actually paid more because one, they took away a lot of what you could claim as write-offs. They took them away and you had these gradual increases in the taxation system. And then you had this massive tax cut of roughly 91 billion for businesses. And when you looked at it, brother, it ended up being a tax shift and not a tax cut. It was no tax cut whatsoever. It was a great design, but it was designed to be a trick. And they played with the numbers and promoted it as a tax cut when Americans actually paid much more taxes that year. Let me take you back to, uh, 25 to 30 years, right? Of Democratic presidents. Actually, it's 40 years. So, under Democratic presidents, black families grew their income an average of about $1,000 a year. It only grew about $142 under Republicans. Black unemployment rate uh, during that same comparative time fell by a net of 7.9% across 26 years of Democratic presidents, uh, but it, w- it went up 13.7% under the, that same time under Republicans, okay? So across the, lead, the across the field of democratic leadership, black poverty declined by 23.6 percentage points, but it actually grew three points under Republicans. Uh, Latinos had a very similar outcome. Uh, Binder and Watson estimated that the average democratic real GDP growth, okay? Was a rate of 4.3% versus 2.5% for Republicans. Uh, that's going all the way back to Truman. So line by line from adding jobs to the economy or to the workforce, thus increasing your revenue for the economy. President Obama inheriting a country where you are hemorrhaging 750,000 to a million jobs. He turns it around, creates record unemployment, private sector growth, booms, it, it comes out the scenes, right? He doesn't get the credit for it on the economic side. And even with a historical comparison all the way back to President Truman, Democrats have increased GDP growth, private sector growth, non-farm growth at a rate much higher than Republicans have every single administration. Without exception, by the way, not one exception to that rule. So how is it that you as an economist, you will still say that those with right-leaning policies are better for economic growth when the data is contrary to your conclusion? Excellent questions. I think I'll take them in order. Let's start with the tax. I'm actually fully in agreement with your analysis of what the tax cut did. All of that sounds great to me. Closing loopholes, fewer deductions, simplifying the tax codes. I like that. I but like you agree tax. then it was a lie. It was a lie then, Professor, right? A political lie when Trump said you're going to pay less in taxes. That was a lie. I don't think it was a lie because we have to distinguish between, on the one hand, tax rates. And tax revenues, you cited a figure saying that Americans paid about 90 billion more in tax revenues, right? That's not necessarily inconsistent with a tax cut if compared to what was under what was going on under the previous tax rate tax rates, we're doing so much more productive economic activity that we generate more tax revenue. In general, simplifying the tax code and at the same time expanding the base is the way to go in terms of both increasing efficiency and equity. So I'm actually a pretty big critic of the Trump administration. I don't think it was good for this country and I didn't support it. I think the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was one of the things that that administration did that had a good track record and I'm proud to defend it. When it comes to the other statistics, again, I'm sure you're 100% correct. 
My issue with that is if you look at the influence of who's in the Oval Office, who's in the White House, we all pretend that the president has a lot more power over the American economy than the president has. We can say that President Obama inherited a mess and he sort of got blamed for that. I'm sympathetic to that, he shouldn't have gotten blamed for it, he inherited it. But neither did he really turn it around because there are economic forces that are pushing markets to do what they do. We have to discuss the policies that Congress is passing, right? Legislation is not the same across all these things. Taxes, transfer payments, all sorts of variables that matter are changing. And so we can't just line up the economic growth statistics with administrations and say, "Oh, Democrats were in the black, Oh, Republicans were in the red. It just doesn't work like that. I think well, you, you understand this the economic literature and show that lower tax policies and lighter regulatory touches are generally good for most Americans. So let me push back on that. My producers are telling me we're almost out of time. One, 100%, 100% of all increased GDP growth has happened under Democratic presidents. That is a variable set worth analyzing. So when we analyze that variable set, what is the cause and effect relationship between Democratic policies and actual economic growth? Well, one major one is the funding for job training, education, technical skills. There's a massive influx of federal spending compared to Republicans who typically defund these programs. So when you have a Democrat or a Democratic policy or left leaning policy, they say, okay, listen, we know that people need to be trained. They don't necessarily need a four year degree, but they need to be trained. So we're going to increase this budget in order to make sure we have more trained individuals for the marketplace because we see where the marketplace is going. Republicans have tended to defund many of these programs or create what's called a localization of them through state government, right? That has had a real cause and effect relationship on economic growth and economic decrease. So yes, that's not an economic policy brother, but it has impact on the economy. I would love to have you back on some of the nuances of policy because I think you are a worthy debater uh, on many levels, brother. So, Professor, I hope to have you back. Anytime, sir. Thank you.